right. Welcome to Reverb, everyone. My name is Calvin Pollock, and I'm joined by my co-host and co-producer, Alex Helberg. How's it going, Alex? I'm doing all right, Calvin. How are you? Oh, you know, hanging in there. It's uh, summer, which is nice. The semester's over. Good to get some more time to, you know, do some reading and, and, and do some kind of individual projects separate from work. I don't know if it's a similar situation for you right now. Yeah, I'll I'll go at I don't know if I should state this on the pod, but yeah, uh one big project I've got working on <laughs> that I'm working on right now is uh wedding planning. Uh, I'm getting married in 3 weeks. Uh, that's a so, really yeah, important that's, project. That's Alex. a pretty that's a pretty important project. Pretty, it has nothing to <laughs> pretty important project. Pretty 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 good. Pretty, pretty good. Uh, it is, yeah, a, it is a rhetorical exercise. It requires a lot of invention, a lot of um, arrangement, style, memory. You're going to have to remember your vows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will say style has been the hardest part. I leave that mostly to my fiance, who is much better with design than I am. But yeah, no, it's a it is it is a moment that, you know, it's I, I've been reading up a lot on speech act theory because I finally get to do a speech act that, you know, That's that true. actually that actually carries some like legal uh, weight ramifications. To it. So, yeah. Yes. And you have a really important adjacency pair here. Uh, <laughs> the proposal and the acceptance. So let's just hope that that, right. that that adjacency pair goes through as as planned. I believe um, so. We have, we have two interlocutors, uh, you know, at, of relatively similar standing who, uh, you know, yeah, are, are, I think, you know, approaching this arrangement in good faith. So, you know, I think there won't be too much need for debate strategies uh, when we get sure. to this, at least at least I hope. But, you know, that's that's part of the planning process as well. Well, I'm excited to be an auditor of this <laughs> this rhetorical situation. We'll do an episode on my wedding vows later. Yeah, yeah, rejoinder. I'm excited yes. to lead the rejoinder. <laughs> Against my wedding. a lot of wedding. problems with this. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm, I'm oh, really no. excited. Thank you. But anyways, uh, enough joking around. So we are recording here this week. We wanted to basically just do a... a, a current events themed episode and it is may 26th and we're recording just two days after a really horrific mass shooting just the latest horrific mass shooting in america this one took place in uvalde texas i'm sure virtually everyone listening will know the details but over 20 people killed in a horrific massacre the vast majority of them young children, nine and 10 years old at Robb Elementary School. And, you know, this is coming just mere weeks, less than two weeks, in fact, after a massacre in Buffalo, a specifically racially motivated massacre of black shoppers at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. So we're, we're living in a time of extreme social disorder, extreme mass violence, insecurity, and harm to civilians that continues amidst the COVID pandemic, which has not actually abated despite a lot of public discourse claiming that it has. Thousands of people are still dying every week of COVID in America. Cases are surging. Hospitals are filling up again. So we wanted to just check in on specifically public policy rhetoric around some of these issues. And 
I mean, the the first thing that I just want to say is I want to pause and talk about just how sad this Rob Elementary School massacre is happening as it is at this time, happening in a town in Texas that is overwhelmingly poor, overwhelmingly Latino. Everyone killed in this shooting was Latino. And it's just unbelievably sad to think about nine and 10 year old kids killed at school. And I think it's really important for us to just take a moment to reflect on how sad this is. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. It's something that, I mean, not just as people that work in schools, but yeah, people that, you know, either have young children, know people with young children. It is absolutely horrifying to believe that, you know, the place that you send your kids that is supposed to be, you know, that is supposed to be safe, right? Like just for any parent, like letting your child outside of, you know, the home at this point in America, like is I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's terrifying. It's, it's a, it's, it's a horrifying prospect and it's just unbelievably sad. There's not, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what else you can say about it other than that. I mean, I'm just, I'm sad for these kids that, you know, they died at 10, nine, yeah. 10. That tells you that basically a third of their life was spent during COVID. Yeah. These kids deserved so much more fun in their life than they got to experience. It's just such a, a, a horrific thing to think about missing out on not only your teens and your twenties and all the rest of the beautiful things you were going to do in your life, but missing out on a true childhood because of uh, the state of economic and social life in this country, let alone for underserved communities. So, uh, and, and I think that also should affect our, our analysis and our reactions to the Buffalo shooting yes. where, again, underserved communities being targeted for the, just this horrific, spectacular violence. It's just, it's hard to put into words how sad both of these events are. And I mean, I think it is, of course, important to realize that these are just kind of pull quotes from an ongoing stream of tragedies that are always happening, both in this country and around the world, largely as a result of U.S. economic and political action. And and I think that that brings us to what we really wanted to focus on in this episode, which is a rhetorical phenomenon that we're still working out how to describe. And I, and I hope that in the course of looking at some examples, we can come up with some smart things to say about it. But right now, the kind of gloss for it that we've been using is we're all trying to find the guy who can do something about this. Yeah, for those of you who didn't catch the reference, that is a play off of the Tim Robinson, I think you should leave sketch turned viral meme. We're all trying to find the guy who did this. Is everyone okay? What happened? Did anyone see? Someone drove a hot dog shaped car through the window. You know what's driving me nuts? It could literally be any one of us. No, it couldn't. You're dressed like a hot dog. Oh, my God. 
What happened here? Yeah, we're all trying to find the guy who did this and give him a spanking. It's obviously this guy, right? Yes. So if you haven't seen it or couldn't catch the context from that clip, the basic gist of the sketch is that a hot dog-shaped car drives through a storefront window and a man, Tim Robinson, in a hot dog costume uh, kind of performs the same collective outrage that everybody else in the store is performing about, you know, trying to find the person who is the culprit here, despite the fact that he absolutely, very obviously is the person who did this, right? Uh, and so our kind of twist on that is we are seeing from politicians specifically this kind of rhetorical strategy of performing a similar type of outrage of you know who's going to do something about this but often this strategy is coming from the most powerful people in american government so it kind of has that same twist of irony where you know you're the most powerful person the person who ostensibly could do something about some issue publicly you know throwing up your hands in the air and saying you know we're all trying to find the guy who can do something about this and so this is especially evident i think in the public statements that Joe Biden has been putting out about the Uvalde massacre since it happened. So let's just read a few of these and and let's talk about what's going on in them. So Biden, on May 24th, on the day of the shooting, he writes on Twitter, these kinds of mass shootings rarely happen elsewhere in the world. Why are we willing to live with this carnage? Why do we keep letting this happen? Where in God's name is our backbone to have the courage to deal with it? It's time to turn this pain into action. So Biden said that on May 24th. Yeah, I I mean the first thing that I I think noticed when I read when I read these tweets was it's it's always difficult to put together some kind of like epideictic response to to something like this. I mean, you know, we ourselves are at kind of a loss for words with it. And we, when we when we say epideictic, you know, we're talking about how how do we reaffirm the values of the community at a moment when the community has been harmed, has suffered such a terrible loss. Yeah, of course, taking its name from the classical rhetorical genre of epideictic speech, typically given at funeral orations uh, or celebratory events on the kind of opposite end of the spectrum. But yeah, I mean, there's kind of at least in these tweets, there is still a bit of a like. A distancing of subject and action, even in like the very linguistic structure here, not to get like ter- like too discourse analysis on it right away. But, you know, in a phrase like where in God's name is our backbone to have the courage to stand up to the gun lobby. So, again, there's kind of like there's no. Uh, the agency is placed on us in this implied this implied us that comes from the our backbone but to have the courage to stand up to the gun lobby it's this kind of like you know there's whenever something is trotted out like this linguistically it feels a little bit like a hedge or in other words kind of like a deferral from a direct statement of what we need to do so instead of saying like the most direct kind of like unmodalized version of this statement would be why in god's name won't we stand up to the gun lobby versus where in god's name is our backbone to have the courage to stand up to the gun lobby so it's like there's already like three different steps that we need to go through first we need to uh you know find our backbone that will grant us the courage that will then let us stand up i'm not trying to just be pedantic here because i do think that this is something that you see in a lot of political discourse around things like this where there is this you know performance of 
outrage, which, you know, very well could be sincere. Like, I'm not trying to discount that. But what is actually to be done is, you know, mediated through this series of, like, procedural steps, which I think is another thing that we're probably going to return to quite a bit, is the kind of, like, bureaucratization or the presumed bureaucratization of action that, you know, I think... Again, I'm not just trying to be pedantic to make a point about linguistics and discourse analysis here, but I do think it's important that that the president of the United States is sort of distancing subject from action here or stating it in ways that are very unclear. Like, what does it mean to find our backbone to have the courage to stand up to the gun lobby? Right. Let's look at a couple more examples from Biden in the immediate aftermath of this massacre. So... Again, on May 24th, the day of the shooting, he said, As a nation, we must ask, when in God's name will we stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name will we do what needs to be done? I'm sick and tired of it. We have to act. And then the next day, May 25th, he said, It's just sick that gun manufacturers have spent two decades aggressively marketing assault weapons, which make them some of the biggest profits. For God's sake, let's have the courage to stand up to the industry. And of course, there he's referencing assault weapons because assault weapons were used uh, for this shooting in Texas. So something that I notice as well in this example and the example I just read is the kind of implied unity of certain terms. So one of the things that the pronoun we does is it implies a unity in the group that it's referencing, right? So, you know, if I said, we all want to go get pizza tonight for dinner, that may be implying a unity that is not actually there. It, it assumes that I've actually talked to everyone else in the group and we've gotten full buy-in on this idea of go get, going to get pizza. But in fact, there may be people in the group who feel that this is a bad choice because we just had it last night. Right. Calvin um, is not in any way calling out any friends who might have done this at any point to uh, him or, you know, myself. No, I'm just kidding. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. No, it's it is. It is truly just an example off the top of my head. And so the point being that this this gets infinitely more complex as you increase the size of the group and therefore the social space that you are referencing when you use terms like we or, you know, the the contracted verb phrase let us right the us there is referring to a we in the objective form and so similar to the issue of hedging that you were discussing like how that kind of abstracts and occludes action makes action feel much more complex than maybe it needs to i would say these kind of first person group terms like we and us they actually simplify action in a way that's potentially problematic and is, you know, ideologically saturated in the sense that when Biden says, why are we willing to live with this carnage? There may be different groups within the we that he's referring to who are more and less willing to live with the carnage. At a basic level, we can talk about partisan policy views on gun rights. Like there there are massive differences between at least the stated policies of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. But he's choosing to simplify that division in an effort to presume a unity, 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and not only are we talking across like ideological divides here too, but there's also this kind of presumption of who is in the nation that actually has the power to do something about this too, right? And I think that's that's a really crucial distinction that needs to be examined here. And I think it's telling that there's not a real distinction made between the concerned citizen who, you know, could speak up to write a letter to a legislator or anything like that versus somebody who, I don't know, wields executive power over the entire federal government of the United States like that. Those are not the same, right? Like to lump lump those two actors into a we and then presume, oh yeah, everybody who's within that we has the exact same propensity to act upon this, I think is, you know, obviously like it's, uh, you know, again, I don't want to get too pedantic in saying that like, why didn't he fit, you know, something a little bit more particular into 280 characters. But I do think that this does actually like this lack of discrimination between different groups of actors does really make a difference in what underlies this entire form of political rhetoric. What we're talking about as the, we're all trying to find the guy who can do something about this. Who is the one who's supposed to be doing the acting here? There is really not a clear implication of, again, not just across those ideological boundaries of like who would want to do something about this, such as implement stricter gun control measures, implementing, you know, background check requirements and things like that, versus people that actually have the ability to do so and won't for that because they're not being pressured enough by the electorate. It's it's not really that clear. Again, like who is supposed to be standing up to the gun lobby? Can I do that as an individual person? Or is that something that our you know elected representatives themselves only have the power to do? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. That's a distinction that that needs to be cleared up here and one that at least I think it's glossed over. It's why this expression of outrage is allowed to put elected leaders like Joe Biden kind of as being consubstantial with everyday people that, you know, I've probably seen like a dozen tweets that sound exactly the same as this right right uh, but just he's logging the president Twitter. but he's the president <laughs> like there's a difference between saying we need to do something about this as just like a regular citizen versus we need to do something about this from somebody who was elected to be like the most powerful leader in the country saying like we need to do something and calling on other people to act i don't know to me that's that that's a little bit that's a little bit baffling, but I can also see that it's a kind of like, I mean, I I could read it a couple of ways. One is that it's a clear abdication of responsibility and, you know, especially this is more of like the cynical approach that you might take as we're approaching a midterms election year and, you know, certain Democrats rely on the gun lobby to get campaign contributions and, you know, that that is that there are financial interests that do actually play a role in the way that this language comes out sounding as it, you know, as in like not being too blameworthy on particular legislators who, you know, we really need to reelect in the fall. Right. Especially with the Democratic machine. I think there's a lot of arguments that can be made that that money does play a very outsized role in the ways that this kind of mourning takes place. It's not really about like naming specific people who could do something specific. But rather, you know, doing that sort of unifying function of, you know, flattening out who has the ability to act and just saying, we all need to do something. Right. And I think that the less cynical read 
and 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 we'll, we will get to this as we look at a couple more examples of this rhetorical phenomenon that we're describing. We're all trying to find the guy who can do something about this. The less cynical read is that Biden and perhaps the broader Democratic leadership class that he represents legitimately doesn't know what to do about this and or legitimately has come to the conclusion that there is nothing he can do about this. And I think that's a really disturbing thing to reflect upon. And I think we should take some time to reflect upon that uh, as we go. But I wanted to also bring in this just kind of caught my eye because of a certain keyword that appears in it. So there was a debate on Twitter about this, about the kind of commentary that we are providing. This all started basically with a writer on Twitter defending Biden for not having some kind of swift action to immediately take in response to this. And in the course of of this conversation, someone wrote, quote, the weirdest part to me is people on Twitter asking why he's tweeting and talking about it instead of doing something. Rhetoric is always part of the groundwork for doing something, unquote. Oh boy, there's that word again. <laughs> so what did you think of this? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I agree with it. Like as a plain and simple point that rhetoric is always part of the groundwork for doing something. I mean, if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be studying this. <laughs> That's kind of a, you know, a banal truth, I think, that most people in our field would share. And particularly when we're talking about presidential rhetoric, I think it's important to go back to David Sarefsky has a great definition of presidential rhetoric. The primary function of it, I'm not quoting directly here, uh, but the primary function of presidential rhetoric is to define social and political reality. It is a mechanism of laying the groundwork for what is possible and defining sort of like the limits and also the opportunities of what can be done in the current moment given our current contingencies. So from there, we do, I mean, I think it is still worth asking then, if we do accept that as truth, instead of asking, you know, why he's tweeting instead of doing something, but instead saying, what is his rhetoric actually laying the groundwork for right. doing? What are the what right. are the possibilities that are afforded to us if we accept the sort of Biden version of political reality that we're being offered here? So within that, I mean, the possibilities here are it's all about finding courage, right, or finding a backbone, again, for this kind of ill-defined collective of people that— To uh, act, to simply yeah, to, act. To simply act, to stand up to the gun lobby, which, again, like, what is that—what that means What is, does that look like? Yeah, is is incredibly vague here. And I think in, you know, in some of the speeches that he's given too, like there's not a lot in the way of concrete actions that are being called for here, which in general is like again, <laughs> you you want to think in a representative democracy our kind of traditional American political imaginary is that leaders, you know, have greater insight and knowledge into the way that our political process works in a way that nobody in this no like ordinary citizen does and so if anyone could offer specific concrete recommendations it should be the people that are in office right their rhetoric i think they have an obligation to be a little more pointed in it so that they can actually outline like what those possibilities 
uh, concretely are in this current moment. Like, do we actually have the ability to, you know, financially sanction gun manufacturers in some way, right? Like, do we actually have that ability? I would argue, yes, we do. (laughs) We we do have an ability to... And we can maybe get to that later. Yes. Um, But I, yeah, there's an implied premise in a lot of the defenses right now of Biden, you know, across policy issues that he's handcuffed. He simply can't do anything. And I think acknowledging that you and I are not policy experts or rhetorical analysts, we can still say with a good degree of confidence that, you know, there's room for more creativity at a policymaking level than we've seen in the last how many years? I don't know. A hundred percent. Yeah. Right. At least the last several decades. And 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 I just wanted to say one more thing about this claim that, you know, why are people asking why he's tweeting and talking about it instead of doing something? Well, you know, I don't think you or I are asking why he's tweeting. Of course, he's going to say things. He's going to make public statements in response to a, a major public event like this. I think what we're scrutinizing is how he's doing that. Yes. What, we're, what we're interested in is the very particular way of framing collective action around this that seems to mislead the public about the different levels of responsibility for action. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot more historical contextualization to that as well. But I think taking baby steps into the past is is maybe a good way to approach this first. One of the things that I that I found most interesting about, you know, trying to contextualize and explain, okay, why why this kind of rhetoric that Biden is offering up here? Why the sort of like statements of, you know, political leaders consubstantiality with the rest of the public, with sort of performing the kind of outrage that you might see from uh, quote unquote regular Twitter users or, you know, other people that are expressing outrage. Like, why can't we do something? Where is our backbone? Draws from, I think, there's a pretty persuasive case that can be made from the rhetorical persona that many news outlets were painting of Joe Biden before he even came into office that was premised as one of the main reasons why he would be a good candidate. And this is the metaphor of Biden's presidential persona as what the Washington Post called mourner-in-chief, what NBC News called consoler-in-chief, what Time Magazine called America's grief counselor, what the New York Review of Books titled America's designated mourner, and what the NYT or New York Times referred to as the emissary of grief. All of these different articles that have been written on Biden have in some way, shape, or form kind of created this identity for Joe Biden as the person who is speaking at all of our funerals basically not to be too not to be too bleak about it but that is more or less like i mean he was coming into office almost all of these Articles are citing the fact that, you know, he kept a COVID death toll count on the back of his ledger, his notebook that he carries around with him everywhere, right? Like he has this, he is a person whose history is mired in personal tragedy and in death, you know, the death of his son, the death of his first wife, you know, all of these times when he has been called upon to be a eulogizer, you know, the New York Times specifically did a rundown of all the different eulogies that he gave for, you know, everyone from Strom 
Tom Thurmond, sorry, uh, but that's a pretty ridiculous one, all the way to, you know, his own family, right? And they all say this, or at least this is what the NYT came up with and said. In this age of staggering national loss, referring especially at this point, this is June 2020 to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and its already kind of nascent stages. In this age of staggering national loss, his admirers say, it is Mr. Biden's experience as a kind of emissary of bereavement, a man who has been there and can speak with credibility about what comes next that illustrates his most powerful contrast with Mr. Trump. And later on, they say, taken together, the eulogies also supply a portrait of Mr. Biden in his purest form, espousing a throwback value set premised on his own ideas of dignity, style, and nobility, three favored nouns across the decade, revering the clubhouse norms of bygone Washington, fixating on what it means to be a good man, an Irishman, and what it means to be a Biden, right? And yeah, so... Basically, like all of these articles are going over the fact that like he's an expert on grief. He's experienced a lot of personal trauma. And so the you know, we might say that the, the he is the fitting response for the moment that we are in. Right. To borrow from the old language of the rhetorical situation when we're facing down a time of like just mass death and you know, kind of despair in every corner, what we need most, at least according to these articles, is a mourner-in-chief, a eulogizer-in-chief. I don't know. What did you make of these, Calvin? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it reminds me of that, you know, classical rhetorical genre that we were talking about earlier, the epideictic, which, you know, as you pointed out, is primarily associated with funeral orations. It's this kind of ceremonial rhetoric that reminds us all of what we stand for, our, our core values, our core sense of identity, and how that has been affected by the tragedy or sad event that's being commemorated. And I think that, you know, this is often distinguished from deliberative rhetoric, which is rhetoric oriented towards the future, thinking about what policies we actually want to implement, and forensic rhetoric, which looks back at past events and 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 thinks about responsibility, for example, crimes and legal discourses or other kinds of situations. How do we define those situations and, and, and assign blame and responsibility? And I think what we are getting at is that these discourses all assume that in a, in a quite dark and depressing way, assume that the deliberative is foreclosed. Yes. Either, either that policy simply doesn't matter, maybe because it's in the hands of elites and, and, and public sh shouldn't worry about it, or because, you know, the system is so screwed up that there's no point in even really debating policies because we're not going to get them enacted anyways. And I also think the foreclosure of the forensic is also problematic yes. because the forensic, you know, really helps us understand the key actors in a situation. For example, and I won't go into too long of a tangent about this, but there's a lot of reporting coming out now about the ways in which the police responded to this Uvalde shooting in Texas in very incompetent, uh, if not like out and out malevolent ways, yes. uh, uh, not intervening preventing parents from going in and trying to save their kids as they uh, are it, as they are allegedly running in to get their own the police's own children only and left leaving everyone else's to die right and so the point being when you 
prioritize the epideictic genre above the deliberative and the forensic, you really foreclose key political discourses that, that, that we need to engage in and participate in on a regular basis to actually come up with good solutions. And so it's it's a, a quite a dark theme across these articles, especially when you think about epideictic is not only, of course, practiced by like liberal bleeding heart politicians like Biden, it's also practiced by carnival barking pseudo-fascists like Trump, who I would argue the epideictic is kind of worn more naturally by, because for them, it really is about glorifying their own identity, their own value as stars, as celebrities, as, you know, pseudo-comedians. I don't believe that the Democratic coalition elected Biden just to be the polar opposite of that and just be a nice chronicler of American identity and values. I think that people elected Biden because they saw really, really terrible crises all around them in American democracy and in the global economy and and wanted policy solutions. Not only policy solutions, but forensic examinations of what went wrong in the past to get us to this point. Yeah. No, that's always something I think that's that's wanting in a lot of these discourses. And yeah, why the forensic or typically otherwise referred to as like the legalistic genres of rhetoric uh, get kind of foreclosed in not only political discourse, but also, you know, reporting on these issues as well. And yeah, writing the writing of op-eds that are sort of prefiguring the identity of a president yet to come into office. But it's premised on this whole idea that like death and destruction are inevitable. And what we need is a is a good a good eulogizer. We need a good funeral orator to speak essentially for the, you know, the death of this American identity or way of life right um, no and 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 i worry that it is kind of putting the final concluding statement on yeah the possibility of policy change right that's very dark it is indeed so that's contextualizing biden and the way that his sort of identity was created this kind of persona that he more or less i think a pretty, I, whether it's self-conscious or not, adopted pretty clearly, at least from what we're seeing from those tweets above as, you know, mourner in chief. Much has already still been written about the role of presidential rhetoric in responding to mass shootings. So I, I went out and, you know, was pulling some articles together and I ran across this one from Quarterly Journal of Speech published in 2018 by Craig Rood called Our Tears Are Not Enough, The Warrant of the Dead in the Rhetoric of Gun Control. So this article was published specifically in response to, or I guess temporally not in response to, but it was written about President Obama's rhetoric in response to the Sandy Hook massacre, uh, which bears a just chilling and disturbing resemblance to what just happened in Uvalde. Similar story where there was an adult male gunman went into Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, and committed an act of mass murder, uh, most of whom were children. So what this article really goes through is calling attention to the specific rhetorical tactic that Rude sees Obama invoking uh, called the warrant of the dead. The warrant of the dead is, in this case, you know, not necessarily like politicizing death. Uh, I think Rude takes some really critical steps to kind of 
not say that that's what this is here, but at least using the way that somebody died and the political choices that could have spared them as a way of mobilizing people in response to controversies like this. But I want to really zoom in on a specific part of this argument, which as Rude is setting it out here, the the sort of exigency or the the reason that we need this warrant of the dead in rhetoric about gun control. And specifically, this is about, you know, issuing bans on certain types of weapons, or at least about, you know, offering background checks. It's this concept that Rude brings up here that I want to talk about, which he calls fleeting engagement. I'm just going to quote in, in part from the article here. On April 17th, 2013, the post-Sandy Hook gun control proposals that Obama initiated failed to reach 60 Senate votes. The proposed expansion of background checks received 54 votes, the proposed ban on assault weapons received 40, and the proposed limit on magazine or clip capacity to 10 rounds received 46. The failure to pass expanded background checks was the most bewildering. Polling from January 2013 showed that 85% of Americans were in favor of expanding background checks for private and gun show sales, and in April, public support remained between 80 and 90%. Public opinion, Rude writes here, at least for background checks, was not the problem. The problem, as Obama and others argued, was that gun control supporters were not as committed to the issue as their opponents were, or as willing to pressure their representatives. Speaking after the failed Senate vote, a frustrated Obama claimed that the gun lobby used its economic, rhetorical, and political power to circumvent majority opinion by mobilizing supporters to intimidate senators and block the vote. Legislators were fearful of the, quote, vocal minority of gun owners who would, quote, come after them in future elections. He claimed that gun rights advocates were, quote, better organized, they're better financed, they've been at it longer, and they make sure to stay focused on this one issue during election time, end quote. So again, he goes on to kind of talk about fleeting engagement as being this kind of process by which we, over time, as you know, more and more of these mass shootings happen, and I'm sure that this is probably something that some of our listeners are familiar with, you get to this point where so many of these things are happening with such alarming frequency that it's almost impossible to draw your attention to any one specific event as like a mobilizing factor or mobilizing exigency for activist action. But it also presumes, I think in a kind of problematic way, that the entire onus for this change, as explicitly laid out here, fleeting engagement is a problem of citizens and the electorate not being willing to pressure the government in the same way that the NRA lobby does, which I just, I mean, I have such problems with that that notion. It, it places the onus of responsibility for this tragedy or these series of tragedies and the fact that nothing has been done about them onto the backs of ordinary citizens who are just, you know, at this point, just trying to kind of scrape through a living, you know, in many cases who, you know, are at, in the position of like, you know, we're just worried about feeding our children, much less sending them to school and hoping that, you know, nobody brings a gun into that school. Like it is to me, I mean, obviously 20, this was published in 2018, I think submitted in 2016. So, you know, there was still a rash of mass shootings that this author was probably aware of, but but at this point, it almost feels like a kind of callous way of shifting the responsibility of action, legislative action, or any kind of political action onto a social movement that 
you know, is not as powerful as the NRA or the gun lobby. I just think right. that's kind of a wrongheaded approach. Yeah, no, I, I there is something very odd about what we're noticing here, which I think you can also see as a kind of appropriation of political analysis by political leaders themselves. And it becomes a kind of legitimation strategy and, and crisis communication strategy that you say, well, we know, you know, I'm not the first person to say this. Gun control activists are not as well-funded, as powerful, and as influential as gun rights activists. Right. And until they become that way, the policies are just not going to happen. I mean, I think that's, that is a deeply de- demobilizing, demoralizing thing for a political leader to say. I think that yes. political leaders should not be engaging in that kind of analysis really at all, certainly in public. I mean, I understand they're going to do that kind of analysis as they work on stuff behind closed doors. But in public discourse, what Obama should be saying, what Biden should be saying, is what they are going to do, their plans, putting aside all of these political factors that make action difficult, even just if they have any hope of like political success in the future. This is just not the way to go. This is extremely inside baseball, wonky framing of the issue that I think demobilizes much more than it, than it inspires. And it also evades responsibility, right? Fundamental democratic responsibility for what you were elected to do. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm, you know, I don't want to totally go after the author of this article, Rude, here, but I, I want to maybe offer an idea of why we hold a different view of like what of where political responsibility should be located in this and why it's actually incredibly important for, you know, as we said before, using rhetoric to kind of construct the ground on which we stand and how we understand the way that ground shifts and moves and what leverage we have to work within that within the political space. I mean, I think that Root is operating off of a, you know, a vision of political reality specific to the kind of representative democracy in the U.S. where it is presumed that if the electorate is mobilized and engaged enough, they will, you know, pressure their elected officials who... I, I I have you know I have no evidence from this in Rude's article, but the only kind of conclusion that I could draw here is that you know legislators won't do what people want unless they're militant about it. That's kind of the presumption here, and you know to an extent I think the way that America works currently, I kind of agree with that. <laughs> with that being said, I don't think it should be that way. I don't think we should just accept that as a foregone conclusion of like, well, that's just the way it works. That is, I think, a moral indictment on the people that are in power right now and the way that we've allowed systems of democratic accountability to atrophy to this point that we're at. And I think it's particularly dangerous for leaders to say that because as they say that, they create the conditions under which that is the case, right? Yes. Because it further demobilizes people. And when Biden or Obama says that, we have to take it as a statement of policy. Yes. Not, not simply a kind of dispassionate analysis of where things are. Exactly. We also, I think, wanted to, just as kind of a rejoinder directly to that, 
point of view. There's a really good article that uh, Patrick Blanchfield, who's also a great follow on Twitter, for those of you who don't know of him, wrote for Splinter News back in 2018. This was yeah, this was in response to the Parkland shooting, I believe. Yes. Yep, exactly. It's called The Market Can't Solve a Massacre. And Blanchfield really, I think, does a very incisive job of narrowing down the kind of responses that we've been talking about up to this point as being a direct byproduct of neoliberalism. So, you know, for those of you who don't know what it is, Blanchfield offers a little definition here, quoting from the article, neoliberalism is at once a subspecies of capitalism and a model of governance, a vision of what politics can and should be. It sees political and social life almost exclusively through the lens of the free market and asks us to consider ourselves and our fellow citizens primarily in terms of economic activities, as consumers, as workers, as competitors, as human resources. Under neoliberalism, in other words, the individual is less a human subject with rights that entail obligations from the government, but rather a variable in a broader calculus of efficiency, a site for maximizing revenue and minimizing expenditure. Simply put, neoliberalism is about the withdrawal of government responsibility for political problems in favor of market-based solutions and individual choices. So, Again, I think we see that directly reflected in the idea of this like fleeting engagement is, I think, in many ways, a neoliberal concept, right? It's the idea that it's a series of individual citizens' choices not to speak up vociferously enough to match or drown out the power of the NRA, let's say, <laughs> that is assumed to supplant political action coming from people with actual positions of power. It, you know, does a lot in the way of offering cover for political leaders who are not taking action, who may still be just doing the work of, you know, whoever the highest bidder is in, you know, whoever comes to lobby to them. And yeah, then being able to kind of like rhetorically write off like, well, you know, we didn't get enough, uh, you know, there there wasn't enough energy uh, behind, you know, in a push for people who don't want their kids to die at school, right? Like, I mean, it just, like, when you put it in those terms, it just kind of sounds ridiculous on its face. Right. And it just becomes like, if you want gun control, if you want these maskers to stop happening, you have to market gun control and the end of these massacres better, right? You have to kind of make your message stick better than the gun rights movement and lobby backed by an entire political party and apparatus and infrastructure. And yeah, as you're saying, that's just not, it's not realistic when you consider that it's a highly lucrative industry, right? Like this is this, it, it requires engagement with economic questions, I think to actually get any movement on this issue. Like it requires a fundamental confrontation with the corporations that profit, not only from just the sale of the guns that do the maskers, but from the maskers themselves. Because what tends to happen, and this has been shown, you know, through market research, what tends to happen is after one of these maskers, gun sales go up. Yes. Right. And so they're not only profiting from equipping the shooters, but they're profiting from the fear and panic after the shooting. And 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 I think that get that cuts to the heart of the immorality of capitalism, right? Yes. And so if you're not willing to take that on, then you have no chance of doing anything about the issue and 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 so how exactly can you use 
capitalistic techniques and appeals to the market to address something that fundamentally is an externality of that market. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least we we should, I think, consider the morality of this issue as being separate from market concerns. Right. Like, I don't I don't give a shit about gun profits when it comes to weighing it against the value of, you know, the lives of children like that, that just, yeah, putting it, putting it in those terms and knowing that at, at its heart, this is about weighing out an economic calculus for whether somebody will be reelected or get money from a certain lobbying organization. Like it's, it's sick. It's like genuinely sick. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't know. There were, I think it's worth mentioning at least that, you know, Joe Biden in response to the Buffalo shooting, I don't want to, you know, totally write this one off here. You know, he did say in a couple of speeches that, you know, specifically this is an act, uh, a racially motivated act of white supremacy. He did call it an act of domestic terrorism, which we can, of course, you know, debate about whether or not that term, even though I think it's linguistically, you know, definitionally correct as a way of describing the issue, whether or not it's useful to talk about something as terrorism, since that kind of assumes that the threat is, you know, even though it is domestic, it's coming from within, it is still something that is outside of American identity, right? Which I think other authors, uh, specifically Dr. Ursula Orr, has persuasively argued that this kind of racially motivated mass killing is a form of lynching, which is central to constructions of American identity. It is part of, I mean, it was for a long time inscribed in the law of the land that, you know, lynching was an, an acceptable practice, particularly as a practice of anti-black violence that was about policing, policing the color line of uh, the racial contract in America. Yeah, no, no. I and, and just one one quick point on that. Like, I think that this actually is very revealing of how Biden in his presidential rhetoric wants to have it both ways in yes. terms of policy responses to mass shootings because I mean as far as I remember and I didn't look as closely as I should have but as far as I can remember after Buffalo there were very few concrete policies that Biden put out in response to this it was primarily exactly what we've been talking about this mourner in chief yes. genre where he is basically saying, uh, this is so sad, this is racist, this is terrorism, and it's bad. But my my response to that, and where I think he's trying to have it both ways, is that when you choose to call this terrorism, what that actually opens up, ironically enough, is the possibility of significant executive action to yes. deal with it. If this is truly terrorism, then Biden is not handcuffed at all, virtually, in in acting in response to this. After 9-11, the government got an entire blank check to act to combat terrorism, and very few of those legal structures have been abolished. Yeah. And so when I say that, I'm not advocating the kinds of incredibly unsuccessful policy approaches that were taken after 9-11 suspicionless surveillance, indefinite detention, aggressive war, like none of those things made Americans safer from terrorism. All they did was create instability and, and civilian death in other parts of the world in response to our own civilian death. That's not what we need. But at the same time, I think that actually gives Biden some leeway to justify 
perhaps actions that don't require Congress, perhaps actions that, you know, may be controversial, may piss off the gun lobby. If these mass shootings are truly terrorism, then take it seriously. Defend the citizens against this terrorism. You know, I mean, the the idea I came up with yesterday, I have no idea if this is if this is like consistent with at least past policy practice, but it seems to me that based on the the writing of the Defense Production Act, you can seize private corporations under the Defense Production Act. The difference is that, you know, the Defense Production Act has primarily been used to like seize production facilities in order to make things not to destroy them, but, you know, just seize all of the domestic gun manufacturers and say, we're going to use these existing stocks to make something else, to make rails for high-speed rail. Like, I don't care what it is, but there are definitely powers that Biden currently has as president to, like, reduce the material economic gun supply in this country. I refuse to accept that he doesn't have those powers, especially if he's defining it as a domestic security threat. Like the, the, the executive under our system has incredible leeway to act in response to domestic security threats. Yes. Um, and I, and I think that's, that's incredibly important to emphasize, especially for the people that, you know, <laughs> in, in less charitable terms might come back to us and say, Oh, do you think Biden can just wave a magic wand? Do you think he really has that power? And to that, I would say, yes, he does. Um, we have seen after the theory of the unitary executive was, uh, was introduced in, you know, the Bush years, like this, like executive power from the president, the office of the president has been wielded in, just like exceptionally i you know in in most forms like kind of detrimentally in some ways that were unaccountable to uh checks and balances right that were you know like trump diverting defense budget funds to build the wall on the u.s mexico border like that didn't have to he didn't have to go through congress for that he didn't have to ask you know anybody about that he just did it which i think like if you're not even willing to like test the waters on that like I I'm sorry. It shows a like, lack of yeah. will. It's, it's a lack it of shows, will. Yes. Yeah. It's a lack of and, will. And I think coming back to that Zarevsky definition, which is so thought-provoking, it's about defining political reality. Yes. If this is truly a security threat, and I believe it is, yes. you have the power as the president to define political reality in terms that enable you to act on it. And and so, yeah, I, I think that as much as we, we might want to apologize for leaders that we like more than other leaders, I think that we have to have enough self-respect as, as, as you know, subjects of this incredibly unequal, unjust political system and start to demand things. Right. And I, th- and I think we have grounds. We're not we're not coming out of nowhere by saying, like, presidents should be able to do X, Y and Z like they have done them. They've done much more significant interventions in the economy, in in public life than putting a few gun manufacturers out of business. Yes. So just do it. Yeah, just do it. Or at least try. At least, at least give us at least give us some indication that like you actually mean something when you say this, because otherwise it I think people's 
I mean, yeah, there's there's currently, I think it's not a stretch to say, a pretty severe legitimation crisis, a series of varying degrees of legitimation crisis that we've been, that the federal government especially has been undergoing in the last, you know, several years as, you know, quote unquote norms for the way that, you know, legislative or parliamentary democracy takes place have just been kind of flouted, right? But especially in response to like an overwhelming will of a majority of Americans to like do something about, you know, gun violence in America, to not even try, to not even offer anything, like not even not even an idea beyond just the sort of like consoler in chief thing is yeah, I mean it's monstrous. Yeah. And I think, ironically enough, it actually worsens that legitimacy crisis because people can see clearly that this system is bankrupt and they aren't reassured by you pointing out all of the procedural, you know, and tradition based hurdles that make it hard for you to do anything that doesn't like restore legitimacy because they go, oh, the checks and balances are working. He can't do anything. Mm-hmm. I don't think it does that. I think it it contributes to you know the kind of misinformation and conspiracy theorizing and frankly religious fanaticism that you get when the public sector disappears. I mean, we 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 have a bankrupt public sector, and and I think you know. You got to start doing things to restore people's faith in it. So, well, unless unless you think that, you know, this issue or this rhetorical trope that we've identified here, we're all trying to find the guy that can do something about this is limited just to, you know, debates about, you know, responses to shootings and gun control legislation. We have a couple more examples, at least, of places where this has been the strategy has been utilized by Biden and by others. I think the most infamous one of late came in response to the, at this point, well-publicized leak of the Supreme Court draft decision that would more or less overturn uh, uh, Roe and Casey, the main two court decisions that uphold a person's right to have an abortion in this country, a, you know, a federally mandated legal right, regardless of what states say, basically turning decision-making for that right to bodily autonomy over to state governments, which Oklahoma, just as of today, has attempted to pass a ban on abortion from the moment of conception. So already the attacks on this are escalating at an alarming rate. There are other states that have, you know, what are called trigger laws that more or less once this Supreme Court decision, if it remains as written, is put into law uh, or is, you know, put in handed down i should say this legislation from the bench let's say comes down but biden's response to all this was this kind of infamous tweet from may 3rd where he wrote if the court overturns roe it will fall on our nation's elected officials at all levels of government to protect a woman's right to choose then there's a space down paragraph break and it will fall on voters to elect pro-choice officials this november and that's the tweet yeah i mean Uh, Again, it's like you are one of those elected officials. What is your plan? Yes. Like like name one plan that you have. And we haven't actually even discussed at this point the strategy of offloading responsibility to voters. We've talked about offloading it to activists. Be a better activist than the astroturfed activists for the gun lobby. 
But this is also a very popular strategy among Democratic leaders to say, vote harder. Yes. Like when, when bad things happen, we can't do anything about it right now, but vote harder so that maybe we'll be able to do something about it after the next election. Right. And this is, of course, an incredibly undemocratic strategy because it, you know, it evades responsibility for doing anything right now. They are currently taking paychecks, you know, from all of our tax dollars to do nothing right now. That's incredibly undemocratic. But there's also just this kind of Lucy with the football thing (laughs) where it's like we've been told this in past elections over and over and over again. Why should we take it seriously this time? Yeah. And the fact that you're saying something like you as a Democratic president with a Democratic majority in Congress is saying, I mean, yeah, for who knows how much longer, but is saying, you know, the fact that this is something that is happening during a Democratic administration with a democratically controlled Congress is in itself kind of an indictment of that vote harder strategy. Like we right. we did. And this is what happened. <laughs> so I don't know. Like there is I, I don't want to we're not going to wade into the, you know, all the BS kind of surrounding the debates around like the 2016 election. I think a lot of those things are, you know, need to be put to rest <laughs> finally. Right. But at this. Yeah. I mean, I think we can we can examine this strategy just from a basic point. Like like you said, it is undemocratic. It is, you know, presuming that it is the sole responsibility of voters to turn out and make sure that we have pro-choice. I mean, again, it's one of those things where like, I don't, as a matter of like basic fact, I don't disagree with the fact that like more pro-choice officials in November who get elected, like that would be a net positive. But I think Making, again, if we go back to that Zarefsky definition, that this is the only explicit action that's being mentioned here that is possible on the political terrain that we exist on right now, that's a pretty that's a pretty narrow and bankrupt set of options right there to say, like, well, it's all on you guys now. <laughs> There's nothing I can do. And yeah, and that and that the sum total of politics is elections. Yes, it exactly. is. It is, you know. Even putting aside, you know, stuff that you and I have talked about, stuff that we've done episodes about, like grassroots activism and stuff like that, like that, that at a national federal level, politics is about elections when it's like, what about everything in between elections? What are you doing? Yes. What are you doing for four years? Yeah. What are you doing? You know, and, and another elected official who's really fond of this strategy is Chuck Schumer, the the Senate majority or sorry. Yeah. Senate majority leader mm-hmm. for now. Interestingly. I mean, he tweets kind of in the voice of an activist. It's very odd. For example, on May 19th, he wrote, women, and particularly women of color, bear a disproportionate burden of the student loan debt crisis. President Biden can take action and use his existing legal authority to hashtag cancel student debt. I agree 100%, Chuck. Like, I I totally agree. And, and, And there actually are. There are laws and authorities that enable Biden to do that right now. And I actually I have some faith that Schumer is like having meetings with Biden, trying to persuade him, like, please do this. Give us a win before the midterms. But there is still something odd about adopting this voice when you yourself are an elected official. Why are you tweeting this? I should tweet this. Not you. (laughs) Yes. You you have power like you should be telling me what you are going to do. Right. Right. And so maybe the Senate can't like in its current 
form in its current arrangement of party identified legislators or caucusing legislators like they cannot do anything about it but if that's the case like tell me something you can do or tell me what you are doing because it's just weird to see this coming for an elected official because it's not it's not what they are paid to do they are not paid to tell us what other elected officials to do are able to do they're paid to do things for us yeah it reminds me a little bit of during the four years of the Trump presidency, you know, that entire campaign was run on a strategy of like cultural aggrievement. The idea that like there's a certain subsection of the American electorate that's always on its heels, you know, against, uh, you know, like liberal media and, you know, the uber woke or whatever it was that they were inveighing against. And they somehow managed to like, especially the sort of Trump pilled Republicans in office were able to kind of keep keep up that sense that even though they were in power, they were still on, you know, on their back foot the entire time, right? That they are still besieged by cultural hegemony of the left. And also by the deep state. I actually thought, I thought about, I thought about Trump's rhetoric about the deep state that he kept talking about that throughout his entire presidency when it's like, dude, you are the unitary executive. Like you, (laughs) you are the reason that, that I want to see like dramatic policy change and surveillance because you have those tools and you are surely getting private information from your political enemies in this role. So it it becomes actually quite transparent in that case study that this is a kind of like defense against political critiques. Uh, But somehow it's harder for liberals and democratic supporters to see that Biden might be doing a similar thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it it boils down to that essential, you know, the looming danger, the sort of Damocles that is a second Trump term, right? Or that is, you know, further Republican control of different offices, which, you know, represent viewpoints that are in the minority of, I think it's safe to say, like a broad, you know, the, the entire voting population of the U.S. at least doesn't agree with most of the things that current Republicans are trying to legislate from a minority position. And yeah, I mean, but that's, I I mean, one of the big differences, at least it seems to me, and I shouldn't be so glib about this, but, you know, Trump actually did stuff. Like Trump actually did use the unitary executive to wield power in ways that I think are horrifying, but still actually followed through on certain promises. You could make the case that, you know, Biden did that with uh, pulling troops out of Afghanistan. Like there were certainly things that, you know, he stated in his campaign that he was going to do that he has followed through on. There's, of course, I think a lot more gaps in that as well between what he said he was going to do and what he has done. So there is still, I think, that gap of faith and follow through that, you know, Biden that Biden something that's something Biden lacks that Trump actually at least people were able to believe that he had even if he wasn't you know arresting hillary clinton there was you know the QAnon conspiracy came out of this way of cognitively coping with that dissonance uh and just pretending that he did right so yeah i don't know what that what that says about the sort of partisan difference here but it is i think like you said i think you 
put it perfectly, Calvin. It's a strategy to kind of avoid political critique by saying, like, you know, I'm all you're always on the back foot. You're always on your heels trying to invade against something that is more powerful than you. Thus, I am not the person that can do something about this. I can't be put into a position of responsibility. I, Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer, cannot be put in a position of responsibility because there are other intermediating factors that that are hindering what I want and what the rest of America wants. Right. And I think I think this has not been illustrated any more clearly than on the issue of the COVID pandemic, where Democratic leaders and specifically President Biden have basically offloaded all responsibility to individuals. Biden on December 5th of last year tweeted the best protection against Omicron is simple. Get fully vaccinated, get a booster shot. And so those are imperative commands to individuals. Do these things. Totally evading any responsibility for the federal government to protect us against Omicron when we know that certain federal standards went a long way in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic breaking out in like spring, summer of 2020, went a long way towards keeping people safe, like mandating masks, recommending mask mandates that then states were adopting based on the federal government's recommendations. Like there was way more that Biden could have done to protect us against Omicron. And hundreds of thousands of people died as a result of Omicron. Those deaths are on him in the same way that the COVID deaths under Trump are on Trump. And I just, I, I find this like particularly dark when it comes to COVID because this is something where we really need swift federal executive action. Just like mass shootings, it is not a hard leap to reframe this as an issue of national defense. In fact, Trump invoked the Defense Production Act to get masks and ventilators manufactured at a massive enough level like to at least save some people's lives, right? There is room to act. And so I think what we're seeing is a kind of politics of despair. I think we have to take seriously the possibility that these leaders actually don't think they can do anything. Like they, they may be subject to the same vicissitudes of like hegemonic neoliberalism that all the rest of us are. They see themselves as consumers of politics, not as actors. And, you know, maybe occasionally that changes and they decide to act when there's enough pressure. But it's a really disturbing rhetorical trend. And, and I'm glad we took some time to look at all these examples because I think it's, it's clearly a trend across issues. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's a way of it's a more useful way of talking about a kind of decay in democracy or democratic practices, democratic institutions than the sort of like partisan divide rhetoric uh, or, you know, the, the arguments about like there are there's too much political polarization and that's what's like interfering with democracy. I think that certainly plays a role, but I think that that can if taken the wrong way or assumed to be like that's the one totalizing factor. It reduces our view of who actually has the ability to act to make life better for most 
ordinary people, right? And that is not ordinary people themselves. Like, I mean, there's an argument certainly to be made that like mutual aid and like, you know, community self-determination is kind of the only way forward in a dysfunctional democracy. We probably don't have time to go there today, but it's the kind of, you know, we need to start examining the rot that comes from, you know, that comes from this kind of rhetoric, this kind of political worldview being circulated and just at least at the very least, like as critical, you know, consumers of this kind of rhetoric know that that's not the whole truth, that there is room to disagree with that reduced view of political problems and the onus of responsibility being placed solely on the people who are supposed to elect or pressure elected representatives to get things done. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it does not have to be this way right now. There are actions that Biden could take to confront the gun lobby, to confront the gun industry. Yes. I mean, because fundamentally, this is a capitalist industry operating in, you know, we can talk about the fact that America has has deregulated so many industries over the decades, but it is still a heavily regulated industry. There is room for regulation particularly in times of crisis. Yes. I think we have to acknowledge this is a crisis. And, you know, maybe that's a good place to leave it, is that, like, in a time of crisis, this is not the time to depoliticize. This is the time to repoliticize even more strongly the lack of action by elected officials. So hopefully this episode has helped you kind of see some of these currents across public presidential rhetorics and 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 other uh, political rhetorics but put down the mimosas we're not at brunch anymore we have to get no, back we're out not. there <laughs> well they have to they you know? yes I, yeah they, I, no, I would that's like true. i would that's like true. chuck and joe and nancy to put down the mimosas for sure absolutely um, so yeah any any final thoughts alex or uh, oh. uh should we call it i think we should call it it's not i mean it's not a fun episode but i think it was a necessary one and it felt at least cathartic for me to kind of talk these things out with you, Calvin. So thanks for, too, man. thanks for pulling this together. I appreciate it. Definitely. And thanks to everybody who took the time to listen. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Uh, you will hear from us again soon. Uh, a lot of fun stuff planned this summer for the show. And uh, we thank you so much for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock with editing work by Alex. Reverb's co-producers at large are Ben Williams, Sophie Wadzak, and Mike Lautenbach. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.